This is Mission Disco, a conversation about imagination, innovation, and Christian mission in Ireland and beyond. I am Simon Kilpatrick. And I am Brian Sanders. We are your DJs for this conversation. You mentioned churches in Ireland, um, or you mentioned churches in the States being, you know, 75 people on average. Churches in Ireland are smaller, considerably smaller. Yeah. You know, there's churches of 10, 12, 15, less slightly more I don't know what the average size is how because I've been in churches where churches are small and they try to to do the big church they try to do the service with all the parts in it do you think there's anything that you would say to those churches that considering market churches may help them or free them from some of those Mm -hmm. responsibilities they feel they should have that they should have all these songs that they should do this this and this I know you haven't been in Ireland that long, but no, do you yeah. have an idea of what that might look like? Yeah, I mean, one of the thing, one of the kind of um, well, I was I was on a subway recently in New York City, and there was a, you know, in the subway they'll have these ads, these kind of print ads, so you have nothing to look at, so you look up, mm. and there was a there was an ad for the Arnold Bread Company, so it was sliced bread essentially and this is really this is really fascinating um the 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 campaign for the arnold bread campaign was called simply small and what they were doing is basically saying look we we've revolutionized the sale of bread because we made smaller loaves of bread this is just fascinating and actually in the side kind of a bubble it said like only 19 slices that was like, positive. Yeah, like this is in this is States, isn't this doesn't... great? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And the, the the tagline was "small loaf in the big city," small loaf in the big city. So I started thinking about what, why is that uh, advantageous? Like, what 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 what's gone wrong mm-hmm. that you can say, "Oh, a small loaf in the big city." You want a smaller loaf of bread. That's what you want. Why? Why would you? Why would that be a good thing? Like a loaf of bread's, you know, so little money. What's the problem here? Uh, so then I just started thinking, it must must have something to do with like everybody in New York has like a half-eaten loaf of bread that's getting moldy or something. Yeah. They just weren't able to finish it. So to actually be able to buy a loaf of bread, which is smaller, maybe better for our pattern of consumption or whatever, is really attractive. Mm-hmm. You know, small loaf in the big city. And of course, that juxtaposition of small with big... So it's something to do with like, we 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 went for big. We we thought big was better. Mm-hmm. Everybody told us bigger is better. Why wouldn't you want more bread? But it went wrong somehow. It it got moldy. It 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 felt like waste. It it no nobody's happy to come home and say I bought that and it, I I never was able to eat it or never was able to use it. So there's there's this there's this appetite for something smaller, something that's made for. Uh, the realization, which I presume has to do with a negative experience of the big, a negative experience of too much. And one of the things that drove me in terms of theologically trying to understand microchurches is is this idea of um, little ones. And when Jesus uses the word little ones several times, and every time he uses that term, little ones, which actually in Greek is the word micron, which is where we get the word, that's a derivative here of micro, the little one, the small one. 
he chooses that even when he's talking about children he still chooses instead of using the word for children he uses this 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 micron word um, and some of the harshest language he has in the whole new testament is around the protecting the the elevation the honoring of little ones little things and I think it represents something about the heart of God and something he was seeing that little things, little ones, little people, little projects, little ideas often are mistreated, misunderstood, often are, I don't know, devalued. And it really made him mad. This is, this is some strong, strong language. If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it's better that they had a millstone tied around their neck and they were cast in the sea. I and mean, that's, some, that's some rough language. But I think I think what elicits such a such a like potent, almost violent response from Jesus is don't put down these little ones. Don't devalue these little ones. And of course the word there for stumble is the word we get the word scandalize. It's it's in Greek it's literally the word scandalize. <clears throat> and so he's basically saying, Don't scandalize these little ones. Don't make them feel like they're doing something wrong by being small. Mm -hmm. very he's very upset about that possibility so when i think about that in terms of small churches not only do i think that that small expression of the church is potentially more powerful and more useful uh in terms of creative contextual engagement of the, the church with the world but we we're making them feel like they're failing so you have a small church in Ireland, and we've seen many of these. We, we interact, we, we work with many of these small churches in Ireland, and they're 30, 40 people, 20 people sometimes, and they just feel inferior. They feel like failures, mm -hmm. and they feel like failures because somebody told them along the way, you, 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 a church is supposed to be 200 people, mm -hmm. and you're not that. And so you just keep striving, keep all the literature you read, all the resources are trying to make you grow to be bigger. When in, when in point of fact, what I'm saying is that that group of 20 people is something very beautiful and very powerful if you'll allow it to not try to be a 200 person. Now that becomes problematic. So now we try to have a worship service and a sermon mm -hmm. and everybody sits in a row. And if you just admitted we're good at 20 people, we want 20 people, we're happy with 20 people, you could do that totally differently, mm -hmm. do it really well. People would really know each other. You'd have a really powerful expression of the church, and then say, "We're good at this. Let's do it again. Let's have ten of these. Let's have let's have a hundred of these in our town. You know, mm -hmm. because we're good at it. Mm -hmm. Because this works, and it would work in Ireland. <clears throat> a really uh, uh, self aware twenty person church that stopped trying to be a two hundred person church, and just allowed itself to be a micro church, and, express, and then said, "Let's make loads of these. Let's mm -hmm. plant loads of these. Let's inspire loads of these." Yeah. Could be done, and of course, you know, because we talk about this all the time, and we're doing this. I think that's the way forward mm -hmm. for the church in Ireland. Is to it's kind of like we could say the it's sort of the demonic Goldilocks effects, the reverse Goldilocks effect, where we're just not big enough to be a big church mm -hmm. to have the strengths of that, and we're not really allowing church to be a microchurch mm -hmm. to be good and small and beautiful and meet in the mm -hmm. living room or a pub or something yeah. like that and so we're kind of stuck mm -hmm. in between those two identities mm -hmm. and doing neither well yeah actually i remember reading a quote i think it was by a guy called minatray i can't remember his first name is about church and it's probably it's been used a few times but instead of measuring our church on the seating capacity measuring on the sending capacity mm -hmm. 
I think that's it's more helpful thinking about that than it is about seating capacity. I remember because um, I think when we talk about marketers and talking about releasing ordinary people to start these things, leadership and the way we structure church has to look different. And I remember it was you had said a quote there. Um, a Home Depot used to have their motto was um, "You build it, we'll help." I think a lot of times uh, we as church think about our centralized systems. We come up with our programs and then we ask for volunteers to help. And I don't think I've ever really come across you use the word volunteers in this because you're actually talking about people leading something themselves. It's not volunteering for someone else's vision. Um, you have a quote in the book where it says, when the people in the pews are not asked to be the church, then the people of God no longer embody what the church is supposed to be in the world. How, how would you say to anyone listening to this, a leader in a church who would love to embrace and to help people discover their calling to start a microchurch, mission community, whatever you want to call it, but to represent the church in the world. What is that? How does that look different? How do we have to do that? Well, I think the first step for a leader, a church leader would be to, to really let go. It is a letting go because if we will, if we want to empower our people to, to plant the church in small form, <clears throat> out in the places where God has called them, where they have influence, where they have opportunity, you're going to see less of them, mm -hmm. possibly. Yeah. And maybe see less of their money. Mm -hmm. And so making peace with that, like falling in love with the, the idea of the kingdom coming and not necessarily our thing growing. Ironically, as with many things that are spiritual truths, you know, if you will let go of that, you may find yourself um, with something actually quite big and vibrant mm -hmm. in the end. You may find yourself a part of or leading or offering some kind of loving servant leadership to a network of things which is beyond your wildest dreams. But that can't be the motivation. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's just about you having a bigger church or a bigger empire, and you, let's just call it network now rather than my church is big or... Instead of a mega church, let's call it a microchurch micro network. And that, mm. that's still just your sort of, I don't know, <clears throat> uh, ego expression of your own megalomania or something. That's not good. It's not, not going to bear this kind of fruit. You really have to mean it when you let go and, and want to see the kingdom come. And if you'll do that... I think you'll find real receptive hearts with people, but they'll need help. They'll need guidance. They'll need a pathway. And this is part of what, what I lay out in the second part of the book is just how would you do it? How would you start it? And it has to do with helping people discern their calling. So it has to come from Jesus, not from you. You can't engineer. This is what I want. Microchurch mm. is doing these 10 things in our city or something. It really has to be something that comes from God to them so that when they wake up two months from now, they don't need you to inspire them to do it. It's in their heart to do. Um, <clears throat> I think we do have to have systems in place to support them. So if you're going to say, I mean, if you have a church, let's say you have 50 people in your current church and you said, okay, let's all, let's help all 50 of you figure out where God is calling you. And maybe 20 people respond with clarity. Just overnight, you could have 20 micro churches kind of, at least in the ideation phase, like starting off to try to figure out how to reach their context and do something really beautiful, trying to form teams, all that stuff. Uh, man, you would just need a different infrastructure to support that mm -hmm. than you currently have. So the Sunday schools and the and the 
women's breakfasts and stuff, it's not necessarily what those 20 microchurches would need from you and from the centralized. I mean, I think about, when I think about like the built environment, so we talk a little bit about that and it's something I think a lot about is the built environment. Like if I, if you give me a church building and you say, okay, let's, let's replace a traditional form of the church with a networked form of the church, smaller microchurches, I would just almost imagine gutting the whole building. Every single square foot is now just blank template. And then how would you rebuild it? How would you, how would you reorganize that square footage for this network of worshiping missional communities? You'd use the space differently Mm -hmm. because those buildings were designed for a version of the church, which is a hundred years old or more. It was, they were designed by an architect, by a, by a planner to, to support that definition, that version of what the church is. So it just, it just stands to reason that we are going to need different, uh, a different built environment to support this version of the church. And that's just one example of infrastructure. I think it's an easier example to wrap your mind around because you could say, yeah, we would we would gut the church and we'd rebuild it inside. The, the new walls that fit inside would be different. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd have more space for office. You have more. You'd have co working. You'd have more. You know, kind of usable, multi purpose space that the people could come in and make it into what they want. Mm-hmm. But that that's true for governance. It's true for money. It's true for leadership development. It's true for Every system. Yeah, because we have an inherited form of church that we've received. Mm -hmm. Buildings, leadership structure, all those things that you mentioned. But we don't, we seem to want to preserve those or continue in those ways and not look at the context in the world we're living in and try and go, well, actually these things, they're not biblical things, our buildings or the way we do governance or any of those things. How do we change them in order to to suit? Yeah, and, and because we're doing more of this too, we know, we see it all the time that sometimes it's a, it's a stubbornness or a, a sunk cost bias. Like we're we're just really committed to this. I've already mm. given six years of my life to mm. this. I'm not really ready to let it go. You know, um, sometimes that's it. But a lot of the people that we're we're bumping into is like they're they're not just stodgy, stuck in the past. They mm. want to change, but actually the bigger challenge is this is this like failure of imagination. They just can't see how. Mm. They don't know. So even if they were to gut their building using that as a metaphor, they wouldn't necessarily know how to reorganize it, yeah. how to rearrange it. So <clears throat> I think that's why this dialogue and these kind of discussions, and of course this this book is not the answer, um, but 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 beginning this discourse, opening mm-hmm. up this discourse, and is going to be part of it. Just you know, opening up our minds, giving us new imagination and new possibilities for Mm. how we could restructure things and then experimenting, trying, we need more people out there like empowering microchurches and then trying to make Mm. some sort of community or network out of those microchurches and then learning and dialoguing with each other about it as we go. Yeah. And I think there's, uh, there's no blueprint for it. Your sec, the second half of the book is really helpful because it helps people think through some of those questions and some of those stages involved, but even thinking about, I don't think there's much in the book about how does someone lead a network of microchurches or how would they make those changes? What would their building look like? How would they spend their money differently? But it probably is a, you need to work that out as you go and you need to be able to experiment and fail. And try yeah. Things. First things first, we have to liberate the system we're currently in. Mm. We have to, we have to, it's just about, I think it's just about courage. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and then, then we'll find that at that point of, 
desperation, need, God will be there for us. He'll show up. And that's certainly part of our story in the underground, like taking that step to say yes to these smaller versions of the church and just committing, covenanting with God and with each other that we're going to find a way to serve them. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna use all of our resources to help them thrive and flourish, and then having mixed results, you know, doing doing loads of things that really does that it really helps them, and some things that just come up short, yeah. but that's okay too, mm-hmm. and 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 working on that problem, and not feeling so, um, I don't know, so constrained by our previous inherited form, like we just can't touch it we just can't change it um and and it really is you know the the we don't want to put the cart before the horse you know we don't want to start thinking about networks and start thinking about reorganizing and infrastructure and those kind of questions if we haven't said yes to microchurches yeah so this is a part of why i think we you know because writing underground church which is a more of a systematic more of a bigger picture kind of thing might be backwards like we so mm. I, maybe i should have written the microchurch book yeah. first and and we and and for many people who we've been in contact with who, who come to the underground and say oh we want to do something similar to what you're doing and we realize that actually you've never planted a microchurch you've never done it mm. so just do that mm. like hold off on mm. the bigger dream of like reorganizing the church and just go be the church in this mm. kind of very simple profound and beautiful way and so maybe a book like this helps people. And I think that's that. what your story is. It's starting with the microchurches and putting the system into place. And I think there's a similar history with us when we started the under 18s disco years ago. We hadn't a clue what we were doing, but we were starting with that and then trying to put a system in beyond that. And you're still Correct. learning and growing yeah. with that as you go. I think one of the um, the biggest revelations in the book of all the stuff we've talked about, there was a start of uh, part one. Um, I think it is, it's your first line in part one. It says, I have a friend. And that for me was a massive that's, thing. That's amazing. <laughs> just <laughs> tell us just, about just, that. <laughs> See, um, everyone can have a friend somehow. You're the friend, Simon. You didn't know you're my one friend. If I want your friend. But I think it's not, I think it's very easy. <laughs> for sometimes people looking at these things, you can see, well, that works in the States or that works where you are. But actually you've seen it in a good few places around the world in various different contexts. You were in the Philippines recently. You've seen it in Germany. You've seen it in these places. It's not It's not a model. It's more of a just a way of that the church needs to evolve into, of being small, being released to ordinary people in the pews. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I just want, I'm starting, I'm, I'm starting to think, part of me is starting to think, okay, if we really took our considerable intellectual, scholastic, creative leadership, impetus within the church and we said let's really help these guys become great at being small like let's just accept that the church is less than 50 people mm-hmm. that's its best version or let's, let's just think about the sovereignty of god that's how god forms his church that's how he always has because again statistically speaking that is how so let's just assume god hasn't been a failure at deploying his church for the last 2,000 years. Let's assume he's actually in more control than we realize. Then let's spend more time trying to figure out how to do that really, really well, how to give the sacramental life to those versions of the church and not try so hard to be massive. Mm. Even if even if we say, okay, these these occasional churches, which I think it's like less, it would be less than 1% of churches in, or in the thousands, 
but if, if occasionally in cities you do have churches forming in that way, and let's just say I have no problem with that. I do have some problem with it, but let's, for the sake of argument, let's say I have no problem with that. It's lovely. It's, a, it's a, an anomaly, though. It's an anomaly. And maybe it's a good anomaly. And maybe every city hopes to have one of those or something because there's maybe some things they can accomplish. But to say that is the church is a big, big, big mistake. It's, it's wrong. It's incorrect. It's not, it's not that mega churches or super churches are bad. They're unique. They're anomalies mm. that stand out, you know. But, but what, unfortunately, what that does to smaller expressions of the church is make them feel wrong mm. or inferior. Mm. And then everybody's trying, dreaming and striving and reaching to be a mega church. Mm. When those are anomalies, they're never meant to really be yeah. how the church is. So instead of somebody with a with a with a community of say forty people that meet in their living room or meet in a meet in a laundromat once a week or something like that, and it's just beautiful and powerful, and people really are coming to Jesus and they're always baptizing people, and it's, they're known in the community and they really help and they empower and send other people and they're actually multiplying what they do in the world. Instead of them feeling amazing about what they're doing. They think they're not. They don't have a band, mm -hmm. and they don't have. They don't have a Good live stream, preacher, and yeah, yeah they don't. Yeah. So, I guess they're not really doing mm -hmm. it right, mm -hmm. and that is that is a real problem. Yeah. Because number one, they they may be doing it exactly right, and number two, why are we not helping those people become better at that? Actually, um, doing it, learning to do it really well, and then to multiply it to help other people do it really well to keep the church in the size it was maybe best at or mm. meant to be. And then, yeah, sure, we, we, we should organize those things together because there's ways in which the pooling of resources, collaboration is also needed, a citywide kind of versions or expressions mm. of the church. Um, we need that. And you, I can make a case for that too, why that's important. Yeah. But until we get this, this little yeah. bit right, then yeah. we won't get that right. Either. And I think the book's really helpful in, as was explaining what microchurches are, given the theology behind it, the ecclesiology behind it, but also then practical and how would you start? And I think for anyone uh, listening, wherever you are, there's, I think people could get in contact with us or the underground and states to um, maybe be guided on that, helped mm -hmm. in that. Um, in Ireland, through Praxis, we want to so see some of these happen, some missional initiatives, microchurches started. So there's ways to to help and I think bringing those resources together and, and insight together and being able to give input into people we'd love to see things started so thank you Brian for sharing is there anything else you want to yeah I mean say? I guess yeah on that note I think if you are a person who um has an idea or has had an idea thought, well I'd love to do that or, or, mm. or even maybe a frustration like the church ought to do something about this the church ought to be there and, it, and we're not um it could be that you're actually called to be the person mm. and you're called to form the church there. So I would say, dream about this. But but many people already know exactly where they would plant yeah. a microchurch if they had the freedom or the permission or whatever. And then I would say, get a hold of this, if for no other reason than to jump to part two and just walk through these kind of four feedback loop cycles mm. of how I would say, this is how you get started. Mm. Don't... Um, don't delay. Mm -hmm. Just get going. Get mm -hmm. started. And that that really, in the end, is why I wrote it, is for that person mm -hmm. who right now has an idea or has begun, has kind of been feeling out the starting of 
they didn't maybe they weren't calling a microchurch, but something mm-hmm. that they believed needed to exist in the world in the name of Jesus for mm-hmm. Jesus. Um, and I would I would love it if people could, you know, email me, send me stories if if this becomes yeah. useful to them to go through that journey. We'd love to know about what you're doing mm-hmm. and to just encourage that, pray for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think one that you talked about people maybe have an idea or have something that they believe God has put in their heart, but for those who don't. Um, we're running two events in Dublin and Belfast for those listening in Ireland, um, calling labs. So mm-hmm. exploring what calling is. And we'll talk about this in another um, podcast episode, but those are the 5th and the 19th of October. So if that's something that maybe is of interest to people to come along and to discover their calling or maybe what God's put in their heart, yeah. that'd be something to keep an eye out for. Amen. But thank you yep. for that. Cool. You've been listening to Mission Disco, a podcast by Praxis Movement. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Praxis Movement. Subscribe, like, or download this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or online at praxismovement.com.